Good morning. Uh, good to see you. I do want to clarify that even with this guy sitting here to my left that we only have eight people in the building today uh, conforming to the protocols. And I, I love that video because so many of you have been living out your mission. Uh, even this week I heard Ann Friesen has been writing cards from uh, where she is at Riverside Manor and sharing those and sending them out. All those kind of things are vitally important. That, you know, we talk about our four commitments, worship, learning, relationships and mission and, and that's how the church lives we don't have to be afraid of the church being shut down or compromised if we live out those commitments each and every day uh, we're back we're in the season of the gospels we're looking at mark this series called the misunderstood messiah uh, coming back to to how the actions and the teachings of jesus really challenged the people who heard them and saw them uh, all these things were amazing, but, but kind of unexpected. As Jake shared last week, you know, the stories that Jesus told weren't about political overthrow, about power, but they were about seeds and about candles being put on a stand. And Mark is, is forcing his readers to confront the actions and the teachings of Jesus as a way to push them to understand what it meant to be the Messiah. And today we're going to pick up in chapter 8. I realize we've skipped a chunk of text from the beginning of 5 to 8, we're going to actually start in 827. There's more healings that happen there. There's sending the disciples out to preach a message of repentance. John the Baptist gets beheaded. Twice, Jesus feeds huge crowds and he teaches. He walks on the water. All these are great stories. And they've all been forcing the people, confronting Jesus and his ministry to think, who is this and what does it mean that he might be the Messiah. But in chapters 8 to 10, which we're going to look at the next two weeks and just kind of pull some chunks out of those, it's focused more on the disciples. The, the disciples, what are they wrestling with and how are they thinking through these teachings of Jesus? So we're, we're going to look at four chunks of Scripture between chapter 8 and 10. I've got three other readers that will help me as we go through the sermon by video. Uh, but I would encourage you, follow along in your Bible. We're going to start, I'm going to read the first little section, which is very familiar Mark 8, 27 to 30. And then, like I say, I'll have some helpers further on down. But just listen to the word of God in Mark 8, 27 to 30. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you're the Christ or the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This, this little chunk right in the middle of the book really is the crux of the whole book. It's the point where Mark drives home what I would say is the biggest of all questions. The very heart of his gospel. He's been presenting these stories uh, of Jesus that have confronted the people with the, this burning question. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? It's a question of the ages. I think it's one that, that really, as believers, we have to, we, we settle it once and for all when we surrender our life to Christ, but every day it comes back. Will I really live out of that? And I, I've preached on this little passage way too many times over 20 plus years. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I do want to highlight two things. The first one is this. With Jesus, it always gets personal. He starts with that general question, who do people say that I am? And there's answers. It's a question out there. The disciples aren't surprised by that question. They talk to him. They've been talking about him. John the Baptist or maybe Elijah or one of the prophets. And, and Mark's reminding us 
even by that first question, these stories that he's been telling in the first eight chapters are prompting lots of discussion and dialogue. People are thinking about it. But, but Mark says Jesus is going to narrow the focus. He always gets personal. He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And I talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago when I, I pushed our, us to ask ourselves, are we a fan of Jesus or are we a follower? Well, the same thing is going on here. It's the biggest question we ever have to answer. Who do we say really, not just with our words, but with our lives, who Jesus is? And it's, it's subtle. We can think we are saying one thing and not be saying it. We can take a, a theological approach, a, a kind of head theology where our brain becomes this library we, where we store all this information, theological concepts, and we know all these things. But, but is that what it means for, us to Jesus, for, for Jesus to be the Messiah for us? We know lots of things, good things, but that's where it stops, and our lives may not reflect the truth of Jesus day by day. Or we can take what I call the Jesus t-shirt approach, right? Where Jesus is my homeboy, right? We, we pay homage to him. We like him. We go to church. We're perceived as people who are close to Jesus because we know our Bible and, and, and we have those, those structures in our life that make us look good. But underneath is a heart that still struggles with control. See, his, his disciples could stay at the general and debate what people thought, they could be happy to hang out with Jesus, but Jesus pushes them deeper. And Peter answers. Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, I've told you, that's not his last name. That's the Greek word for Messiah. It's a title. And I don't think we get the radical nature of what Peter said. I, the, I've got a negative example, but I've, been, I've talked to many people who've, who've been scared they might have cancer. And they go and they get tests, and, and they all talk about that moment when the doctor actually says the word cancer and how it just strikes them right at the core. Well, that's, I mean, on a negative spin, that's what's happening. Peter's saying, you're the Messiah. He's actually verbalizing what maybe they're playing with mentally. And he nails it, but, but we're going to see he has the right answer, but the wrong understanding. It's common today, too. We know the truth, but we don't grasp the depth of what it means. I, every year, well, not this year, but every year I do a, at the beginning of the basketball season, I do a team building thing where we get all the, the girls and they, we do it, well, I call it the 25. We have a 25-hour practice. We start at 5 o'clock on a Friday and we end at 6 o'clock on a Saturday. The girls stay with the assistant coaches overnight and sleep in the gym. And, we, and it's a lot of fun, but it's, it's a team building exercise. But I always end it with what I call the commitment ceremony. And we talk about what it means to be committed to a team. And I, and I make the girls stand up and, and some way visibly demonstrate their commitment to the team. <clears throat> and they're committed. They say it. They all get, I've never had somebody bow out of the ceremony. But they don't get what it means. That three weeks later when they're running so much in practice that they're about ready to throw up, I'm like, this is what you meant three weeks ago when you said you were committed. Right? They, they understand the word but they don't get what it means, which, of course, makes me think of the movie The Princess Bride. Now, those of you that are familiar with The Princess Bride, you know the princess is kidnapped in order to start a war. There's a mean guy named Vicini who's kidnapped her for the king, and he's taking her to this area to try to provoke a war, and yet there's somebody following them, and he keeps saying, he can't follow us here. It's inconceivable. It's incon he says it several times, and the guy's still following. And then my favorite character, I think, Inigo Montoya shows up, and he says, you keep saying that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. I try to do it with a, an ego accent, but I'm not going to blow that. So. But 
I can't help but think that Jesus, even when he hears the disciples say Messiah, he's like, you know, you guys are saying that word, but you do not, it does not mean what you think it means. So the question as we move on is, what exactly does Messiah mean? What does it mean? Repeatedly, on the road to Jerusalem, there's three incidences, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, one in chapter 10, as they're traveling to Jerusalem, where Jesus spells it out. He's trying to help them understand what it means to be the Messiah. The first one is in Matthew 8, 31 to 38, and Mathis Giles is going to help us. Read he then begin to teach them what the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Thanks, Mathis. You see, in this text, Jesus is pushing Peter and the disciples to stretch their understanding of Messiah. He's saying Messiah means self-denial and suffering. He says, I, I must suffer. I'm, I'm going to be rejected by the very ones that everyone in Jewish society looks to for spiritual guidance and understanding, the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He's going to be rejected. Then he says, I must be killed. And it says he spoke plainly about this. It's a, it's that, that Greek word plainly is this mix of boldness and confidence and clarity. He just said it. Not really any way to misconstrue the meaning. And Peter says, no way. He says he rebukes Jesus. He, he warns him. It's, it's a word, that word rebuke is actually used throughout the Bible to be calling down judgment on people. Peter is calling down judgment on Jesus, rebuking him and saying, no way. You see, me, Peter's missed the point. He has reoriented the relationship to the point where he is leading and directing Jesus. And Jesus says, guys, Messiah means that I lay down my life, that I suffer. And that's what it means, even if you don't get it. And see, this is the way God does things. It's not the way people do things. And that's why repentance, which has been such a thing in Mark as well, is this rethinking. We have to take these constructs, the ways that we understand power and leadership, 
and rethink them. And for those who follow him, Jesus says the same thing is called for, this denying, this taking up your cross, this don't save your life, let it go. For in losing your life, you actually get it back. Don't be ashamed, he says at the end of my definition of Messiah. And they got it, right? They figured, okay, thanks, Jesus. Thanks for clarifying that. No, they didn't. In Mark 9, chapter, verse 30 to 41, Ella Case is going to read another section where they missed the point again. So they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum, where he was in the house. He asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome does not welcome me, but they who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop, because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can, can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Thanks, Ella. The section once again challenges. They're walking on the road and Jesus is challenging their understanding of Messiah. He says Messiah means redefining greatness. It's, it's troubling words from Jesus to the disciples. He starts saying the Son of Man, which is a messianic title. It's a prophecy from Daniel chapter 7 about this, this human that was elevated to the throne. And he says the Son of Man must be betrayed and killed. And, and it says at the end of that, they didn't understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask. <laughs> They're afraid. Ever been in that situation where you just don't want to know the truth, right? They're afraid to even ask what that means. I don't know. I'd rather just forget that. And, and they continue walking, and along the way, there's an argument. When they finally get to Capernaum, Jesus says, hey, what were you guys arguing about? And nobody really wants to answer because they know that Jesus will not be pleased with the contents of their argument. They're, they're trying to set up a pecking order. Who's the most important? Who's the greatest? And they knew that that was not the kind of thing that Jesus was about. And without ever hearing from their lips what they were arguing about, he begins to help them redefine their understanding of what it means to be the greatest. He says in verse 35, first must be last. The first must be the last and the servant of all. The greatest must be the least. The person at the top must be the one at the bottom. And then he proceeds to take a little child. You want to be great? Then receive the ones who have nothing to offer you. Stop fighting and jockeying to define your position, your importance, and love and serve the least of these. Unless they think it's about just someone within their group. There's this story included there. They said, you know, we saw someone else doing good in your name, casting out demons, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. See, even that, they're, they're thinking it's all about us. It's our little group. We don't even know this guy. What about his theology? We can't even be trusted. We don't know what he's going to do. 
And Jesus says, look at the fruit, guys. In verse 39, no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. See, greatness is not about being in this elite group. It's not about being at the top and having the most power. It's about serving the world in the name of Jesus. And if you're spending time worrying about who is the greatest, you can rest assured it's not you. That's, a, that's self-incriminating right there. If you're worried about your own importance as a Christian, you've missed the whole point. The greatest, he says, is the one who serves. Now, he said it twice pretty clearly that the Messiah looks different. Are they going to get it? Nope. Chapter 10, verse 32 to 45, Rhea Allen's going to read it for us. Mark 10, 32, 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he would rise. The request of James and John. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, Let's let one of us sit at your right and the other sit at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with baptism I have baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over to them, and their high officials exercise authority to them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. Thanks, Rhea. Once again, they're walking on their way to Jerusalem, and it may start sinking in because in verse 32, it says the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. They're starting to get a little bit, and Jesus reiterates once again, Messiah is not what you think. Messiah means leadership through service. Again, verse 33, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed and condemned to death and handed over to the Gentiles, handed over to the Romans, who will mock spit, flog, and kill him. Now he says, follow me. And in the most, probably the most tone-deaf moment in the entire scripture, James and John say, hey Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. When you're in your glory, and when, when they say that, I'm thinking, what part of mock, spit, flog, and kill did you miss? Right? It's just been, I've just told you this. But they say, when you're in your glory, let us sit at your right and at the left. There's still this desire for greatness and power. Messiah for them 
is a ticket to the big leagues. And they don't want to miss out. And Jesus says in so many words, you guys don't even, you don't even know what you're asking. And of course, the other ten hear it, and they're indignant. <laughs> Losers, right? How dare you, even though they're wanting the same thing, they just didn't ask and get embarrassed by asking it. But they're like, how dare you ask something like this? And Jesus calls them together, and once again he says, you know, leadership through service, that's what Messiah means. You see the way it is out there, guys. You understand the way the world does power and control and authority and prestige. But in verse 33, he says, not so with you. Be a servant. Be a slave to all. Verse 45, watch what I do and do the same. And I wonder, you know, I wonder if they walked in silence after that for a while. We don't really know, and I guess it's really not that important what happened there. What's important is what happens here, and, and how are we to understand and live out following the misunderstood Messiah? I started by saying that with Jesus, it it always gets personal, and it does always get personal. What does it mean for you and me to understand Messiah and then to follow where Messiah leads us? It's an enormous calling. I want to leave you with, with four aspects of following the Messiah that I see in our text. There's lots more there. But first, if we call ourselves Christ followers or Messiah followers, it means a daily surrender of our agenda. Back in our initial reading... Peter doesn't even realize it, but he has an agenda for Jesus, and it does not include dying. It does not include being rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And, and Jesus calls him on it quite harshly. He says, Peter, you have in mind the things of men, not the things of God. And you know what? I, I would say we all, whether we know it or not, we have an agenda for Jesus. We, we kind of want him to make our life easier right? Take care of my family. Help me avoid suffering and pain. Put my favorite political candidates in office. Give me good friends that will build me up and encourage me. We all have an agenda. I do. Carry it around with me all the time, right? In my pocket. I don't even realize I have it. But guess what? I always have an agenda. I do. And Jesus says in, in 8, 34 and 35, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And here's the issue. We all have this agenda that we carry around, even if we don't want to admit it. And I just want to be really blunt. Jesus is going to help you surrender your agenda to him whether you want to or not. And I've asked the most Jesus-like person I know to come up and help me. Jake's going to come up. You notice Gary Vath's in here and John Ma's in here, but I asked Jake to come up to represent Jesus. But right here, see, I've got the agenda. This is mine, and Jesus comes to take it. And this is what I do, right? I hold on. And it's a struggle, and he has to rip it away. Now, the other... The, thank you, Jake, for taking my agenda. Jake got rid of my agenda. But... The other option there is this surrender of our agenda, where we, we acknowledge, okay, I want you to do this for me. I want things to work out. I want my life to be easier. I want you to do what I want you to do. But if you choose not to, I'll surrender that. Romans 12, 1. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, to offer 
your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You see, following the Messiah, I know it sounds simple, but it means actually letting him be the Messiah. It entails all that we want him to do being surrendered to what he actually wants to do. And this will always push us towards an openness to rethinking our methods. In 932, they didn't understand what he meant, right? And they were afraid to ask him about it because they didn't want to know. I, he keeps saying that. I don't know. No, 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 no. You know, that's what they're doing. But he says in, in 1043, not so with you. Guys, you're going to have to go about this a different way. And we have to realize that God may do things. I said this the, the first week in Mark. He's going to do things differently than we expect him to. But you know what? That gives me great hope. Because <laughs> that means any situation, no matter how dark it looks to me, God has the ability to do something. When I look at the pandemic, I think, what is going to come out of this? Why? How is God ever going to use this? But if I'm willing to rethink my methods and let him be the Messiah, maybe he has something planned to come out of this. We've seen in our own church how, how our connections, even though we're physically distant with people, we're engaging with more people in the community. More people are watching online. And those of you that watch online and don't normally come when we're together, we want to, when we come back, we want you here. But I'm excited by, by the struggles that this has brought about, the, the good things that have come out of it. It's not how I would have planned it. But we have to be open to rethinking our methods. The, the political upheaval in the world, all over the world, I'm not just talking about that little country to the south, all over the world there's political upheaval. And, 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 and people either tend to respond with elation, everything's great now, or despondency, this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And, and what I'm realizing is that if I can rethink my methods, God might just use either one of those situations. His, his way of doing things is radically different. And we, we get stuck thinking the thoughts of men, but not the thoughts of God. There's this guy, you may have heard of him, Saul, who would become Paul. He was zealous for the faith. He was committed when this early church started out. He was persecuting them because he knew that these Jesus followers were destroying the Jewish faith. And in Acts chapter 9, it says, He, Saul, soon to be Paul, neared Damascus on his journey, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And that was this total change in direction for Saul. A totally surrendered agenda, moving through completely different methods than Saul ever thought he would use. And this excites me. You know, one of the things that, that stuck in my head from a million times that my dad said to, I'm sure I've quoted him before, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. That was one of my dad's favorite sayings. Because he knew, my dad said, I'm a crooked stick, but God can still use me to draw a straight line. And, and we have to be open to these methods that God is not limited. And his call to repentance is us rethinking the methods by which God could work. And at the top of that list, if we're going to truly follow the Messiah, is a life oriented around sacrificial service. In chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Remember the upper room and the washing of the disciples' feet, and Jesus says, Now that I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Now this doesn't just mean doing nice things. 
A life oriented around service is, is different than just being a nice person. It's, it's a changing of our fundamental identity. You, Paul, four, four letters that Paul wrote, Romans, Galatians, Philippians, and Titus. James in his letter, Peter in 2 Peter, Jude and, Revel, and John in Revelation, they all refer to themselves as servants or slaves of Christ. And it's, it's an identity. It's not just we're going to do good things for him. It's, this is actually how we define ourselves as servants or slaves of Jesus. I think Jake and I mentioned this in almost every sermon. Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Doesn't mean he served. He became a literal servant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. One of the quickest ways to assess your understanding of the Messiah is to take a hard look at whether our attitude is the same as that of Christ Jesus. Are we willing to not grasp for our rights? He was equal with God, but did not grasp for that, but, but took on human form, the very nature of a servant the essential character of a servant. See, our lives are to be given to sacrificial service. That's why we exist, to serve, to follow, to give our lives as Jesus gave his. And it's a huge calling. And you know what? The only thing that can actually fuel that kind of calling is the thing that I mentioned in that little video I did this week, living with the hope of the resurrection. It's something the disciples seem to miss each time, but we can't miss it today. If you go back to all three of those stories that the kids read, in 831, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. In 931, they will kill him and after three days he will rise. In 1034, they will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and three days later he will rise. See, this, this hope of the resurrection is what fuels everything else. It's what the presence of the power of the Spirit in us uses as fuel, this hope of the resurrection to help us daily surrender our agenda, to help us rethink the methods that the world uses and that we so easily fall into, and to help us orient our lives around service. You see, hope changes everything. I was talking on the phone just this week with Mark Stebrell, and many of you are praying for Mark's dad, Gus, who... who back in Regina, was put into a care home. It was a horrible situation. Mark said at one point, he's not sure of the exact numbers, but out of the 200 residents in the care home, 190 tested positive for COVID. And they were, they were shuffling people around to try to get the negative cases away from the positive cases. And, and there was a period of time where they didn't even know what room he was in and they couldn't get a, get a hold of him by phone. And, and he was completely isolated. And, and he went from a guy who was struggling with some health challenges and walking with a walker to a guy who stopped that completely who would only get around in a wheelchair, who when they finally talked to him on the phone just wanted to die and go home. I don't know why the Lord's leaving me here. But you know, the good news is there's a house now in Chilliwack with a basement suite that they've, they're redoing where Mark's sister will live and, and, and his mom and dad can move in downstairs. And since, since his dad, Gus, heard that in the care home, everything's changed. He's up walking again from a walker. They thought they were going to have to drive him out because they didn't think he could sit up enough. And he's like, no, I can do it. I can fly. Mark says, he, I get on the phone and he's singing. You know, I'm moving to British BC. Oh, I'm moving to... Bri-. 
the hope of change inspired him completely to be a different type. It gave up everything that had, he had lost. He's regaining from that hope. It's, it's amazing. See, the hope of the resurrection gives life, and the pun is intended there. The hope of the resurrection gives life to each and every day. I've, I've shared with my wife, and she said, you have to tell people, you have to use that phrase. We've, we've had a lot of grief. I mentioned that in that little video. And, and I have felt a deep sadness in my own gut because we just can't process it together. There's something about a community walking through grief together that helps us lean on each other and carry each other. And we just don't have those options at this time. And there's this, all I can call it is a deep sadness that I feel for the grief. But, but the one thing that touches that, the one thing that, that helps me, that brings healing to that, is this hope of resurrection, that this is not all it is. Revelation 21, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain or deep sadness. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. See, that's, that's where this is headed. Despite the pandemic, despite the political upheaval, despite our own personal struggles and the pain and suffering and sadness that we feel, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And that hope fuels the surrender of our agenda. It, it fuels, it drives us to lead lives of sacrificial service. It opens our minds to these different ways that God wants to work despite the situation. It helps us redefine what Messiah means. You see, this hope of the resurrection changes everything. Let's pray. God, we, we feel the heaviness of the world. Um, and, and the way we would have the Messiah deal with it is different, I think, than the way it's being dealt with. We'd love to all be back in this room. We'd love for the pandemic to be over and a thing of the past. We'd love for the people we're losing to death right now not to be lost. And even if they are to move on to heaven, that we could at least walk through that together. We'd love all those things, God. That's, if we could define Messiah any way we wanted, we'd want those things. But we're asking today, God, that you would help us to define Messiah your way, to surrender our agenda to you, to rethink our methods and let your methods take precedent, to live lives of sacrificial service in whatever way we can, to live out our mission here in hope. And we ask, God, that you would make the hope of the resurrection so real and tangible to us that it fuels all those changes by the presence of your spirit in our lives. That's our prayer for you today, to you today. Please hear our cry. In your name we pray. Amen. And I think for many of us, this pandemic has kind of been our road to Jerusalem. We're walking along with Jesus, and he keeps opening up these cans of worms. He keeps bringing up these topics. He keeps doing things in ways that we don't expect. And, and, and what I'm hoping you heard today and what I'm hoping it will drive you back to is when you don't understand what the Messiah was doing, the place that you can fall back to 
is the hope of the resurrection, to realize that no matter how bleak it gets or how dark it is or how difficult it is, how heavy the load feels, that it's temporary, that the kingdom has come and that in the words of, of Revelation, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away, that that order that we're still stuck halfway in is going to end. And the one seated on the throne will say, I am making everything new. That's the Messiah. That he goes through all this this brokenness, all this struggle, all this death to be resurrected and to make all things new. And that's the one who we put our hope in. And my, my prayer for you this week is that on your road to Jerusalem, you can cling to the hope of the resurrection. Amen.